Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Hey friends, today we're re-releasing our episode with Maggie Nyamumbo. Maggie is the founder of Kahawa 1893, which is a social enterprise aimed at connecting farmers directly to consumers in an attempt to get more money back to farmers in the coffee industry. Maggie is a trained economist. She graduated from Smith College in 2011, went to the London School of Economics, got her MBA from Harvard. She worked for the World Bank and on Wall Street. And in this episode, she really carefully breaks down the economic dynamics of coffee pricing. Coffee is this global commodity that passes through hundreds of hands before getting to your cup. And Maggie illuminates how there is so much money in coffee, but rarely does that money go to farmers or to workers. This is a really dense episode. When we first aired it in November of 2019, someone actually sent me a message saying that they had to take out a pen and paper to write down some of Maggie's arguments. I hope you learn as much as that person did and as much as I did from this conversation. Here's Maggie. So if you're in an elevator with somebody, what would be your elevator pitch for what you do? Yeah, so Kahawa1893 is a farm-to-cup coffee company. Um, the way we define that is uh, I'm a third-generation coffee farmer. So my family has a coffee farm uh, in Western Kenya where we process our coffee together with other neighboring firms uh, in the area in a cooperative. Uh, we then import the coffee into San Francisco. We roast the coffee um, locally here and we distribute it um, to specialty coffee shops um, specialty grocery, um, offices, um, direct-to-consumer Amazon, all of those um, channels. Um, and I started Kawa um, 1893 uh, with a goal of essentially creating a better uh, supply chain for farmers uh, in Kenya to get um, a living wage uh, for the coffee that they produce. Um, so the biggest issue uh, with the with the coffee industry has been that farmers don't make enough money to live off of because of um, the you know the global coffee prices are below cost of production um, and so Kenya where I'm from has one of the highest cost of production actually because of the kind of coffee that they produce um, and how they've decided to produce it so it's very expensive to produce and farmers getting uh, really low prices for that means that. Um, a lot of farmers are not making money growing coffee. So for me, um, when I saw the specialty coffee movement growing and sort of Kenya having a really good profile in specialty coffee, I thought that I could help uh, farmers uh, get direct access to markets and hopefully sort of uh, be able to make a living wage out of uh, coffee. It's interesting, your background, because you grew up in Kenya, you've been on farms, you've picked coffee, but then you... You, you didn't grow up like wanting to be a coffee farmer. Um, you actually studied finance and economics. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the trajectory that took you to this moment of starting uh, Kahawa 1893? Yeah, so um, it's funny. Growing up in, um, in Kenya and around coffee, so coffee has always been known as um, a poverty crop. Uh, it's essentially, uh, it, it's a catch-22 almost, which is do a coffee farmers poor because they grow coffee or do poor people grow coffee? Um, so coffee is considered a poverty crop because for a long time, it just hasn't really delivered for farmers. Um, before the 60s, uh, farmers were actually able to make money growing coffee. Um, so coffee was a crop that middle class coffee farmers in Kenya could grow and actually educate their children with. And this was because there was um, a fixed system, essentially the international coffee uh, cartel that controlled the price of coffee and was able to maintain that price, um, you know, in relation to uh, cost of production. Um, and so after that, um, after that failed, uh, the, the prices plunged. Um, and now, you know, the, the, the prices are below cost of production for most farmers. 
And so growing up, instead of seeing how coffee farmers struggled, um, including my family, that was like the last thing that I wanted to go back to. It was something that you did because you had nothing else to do. It was really the last thing that was available for you to do. Um, and so when I, um, so I moved to the U.S., I went to college, got my MBA. Um, I worked at the World Bank um, and, you know, worked on Wall Street. Um, and when I was thinking about sort of what I wanted to do next, um, I was funnily enough attracted to go back into coffee uh, because of because of my background. So I, um, you know, when I was working on Wall Street, I was looking at a different industries um, and I was very surprised to see what was happening in the coffee industry. Um, so first I saw that um, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of consolidation going on um, in the coffee industry, but I also saw that there was a lot of growth uh, within the specialty, which means that farmers could differentiate themselves. Um, so I was thinking that there actually um, could be a way for me to apply my skill set in the industry to um, be able to differentiate my farmers um, and, and also be able to help them um, sort of uh, get the gains from, from specialty coffee. So your focus is primarily on Kenya, which makes sense because that's where you're from. Um, I was wondering if you could provide some context about the specialty coffee market in Kenya in particular, because it is very unique, um, both because of quality, but because of its history as well. Yeah. Um, so I think a little bit um, on the history of coffee, as you know, coffee was first grown in um, East Africa. So that's the original place in present day Ethiopia. But, you know, back then there were no borders. So... You know, we could have been Kenya, Ethiopia. So it's in that region of the world where coffee grows sort of naturally on its own. And then, you know, it was brought over to the Middle East um, in Yemen. And then it went to Europe and then Europeans brought it to to Latin America. And Brazil was the largest coffee growing country um, during the slave trade. And Brazil received, um, I think, five times the number of slaves that came to America and that was because of um, of coffee. So coffee is an industry that is very labor intensive and requires a lot a lot of free labor. Um, and so it was a very for Brazil, coffee was such a big crop for them. And even when the New World uh, abolished uh, slave labor, Brazil would not let go because they really needed slave labor for the coffee industry. And that's why Brazil was the last country to abolish slave labor in. 1888. Um, and so the reason we're actually named 1893 is because I like to go back to the history of uh, where, you know, where coffee started in Kenya and kind of rethink of how I could have built that system better if I existed. Um, and so what happened is in 1888, when, um, slave, um, when the slave trade was actually abolished in Brazil, um, so the European trading companies needed a new source of labor. Um, so then they came to Africa um, in, you know, starting uh, in 1890. So by 1893, they had set up plantations in Kenya. So Kenya was colonized by the British. Um, so the British came in, um, you know, pushed the locals away from sort of very fertile land. They set up estates um, and plantations there and then employed um, the local people, not employed, but obviously used them as, um, as free labor. And so we see that sort of, Kenya as a as a country is founded on um, on producing coffee. So it was it was coffee that Britain wanted out of Kenya, still wants out of Kenya because Kenya still uh, supplies a lot of its coffee um, to British companies. Uh, that's part of how we that was that's actually part of our um, independence uh, deal that we made with Britain. So one thing that people don't realize is when African countries got their independence, it wasn't sort of a freedom out of the blue. Uh, we made deals with our colonial countries. So Kenya made a deal with Britain. It's like, we're, we're going to have the settlers, the white settlers are going to give up their power locally, but they need you to provide, to keep providing the free labor. They need to, they need, you know, all the people that have been working on the farms to keep providing free labor. And that's kind of the system that we see still right now that continues on the continent in Kenya, especially. Um, and I'll touch just a little bit on a big question I get about Kenyan coffee, which, as you know, is the most expensive um, origin in the market in general. So it's going about five, $5 a pound 
versus the $1 market rate. Uh, but the average farmer out of that gets about 20 cents. A cooperative that's doing really well would get 80 cents um, a pound. And why is that? Um, a lot of that money is being captured by the colonial companies that are still um, in Kenya. Um, and so that's, that's something that's been going on since colonialism. And that's something that's continuing because Kenya is a new neo-colonial state. So we have a flag freedom, but we're still economically uh, colonized uh, by, uh, by Europe. I think it's really important to talk about kind of the pervasiveness of colonialism, because I think when you talk about the end of slavery in certain countries um, at different years, it seems like, oh, that's so far away. But at the same time, we're still seeing these effects really concretely. Um, And it kind of essentially translates into a different form of labor that's undervalued or free, um, which I think is really, really important to remember. Yeah, no, and it's it's one thing that's sort of key to um, sort of, it's, it's key to Kenya in particular because of how we produce our coffee. So we produce our coffee in cooperatives and we have to do it a certain way, in a way, and this this way is codified in the law. So it's like institutionalized racism in the law of things that we can and cannot do to make sure that we're getting um, a British um, coffee companies the, the, the coffee that they need. And so when I speak to coffee, uh, the coffee industry people um, about, you know, why are we still not getting money to Kenyan farmers? And then they're like, oh, Kenyan farmers are not productive enough. Um, and, then, and then I'm like, okay, so why are they not productive? It's because they have to produce coffee a certain way. Um, it's the law uh, of how they have to produce. And it's one of those things where sort of big coffee has put different countries into different buckets of what they should produce. So they have Brazil producing a certain type of coffee. They have Vietnam producing a certain, certain type of coffee. And so they have different countries helping them develop their menu, but they want to pay a Kenyan farmer that's producing coffee manually the same price they're paying someone producing um, mechanical coffee in Brazil. Um, so, so that's part of the issues of where you have Kenyan farmers producing coffee in a way that um, essentially is producing a really high quality cup of coffee, uh, but they're still not getting compensated uh, for that labor that goes into that. Um, but then they actually can't change it even if they want it because in, in the, there's a law. Um, so if you're a multinational and you have a small country that you want to do something, you can just tell them um, that farmers are not allowed to even stop growing coffee without a permit. So you need a permit to stop growing coffee. You'll be fined if you actually cut down your trees. So there's a lot of ways that multinationals, which are sort of the Starbucks, the Nestle's, um, can force small countries to do things that serve them better um, than what smallholders really need. And that the, 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 the example that we see um, that really done well is in Kenya. Um, and I think when you study, so Kenya is the exact opposite of Brazil. They, these are the really two opposites. So Brazil is high volume mechanized and Kenya is low volume, you know, really uh, manual, you know, higher quality coffees. Uh, but big coffee kind of wants to pay the same price for those two coffees. Uh, so the farmer in Kenya with a small farm doesn't have the productivity of, of Brazil. Um, and, and, and the way that we've been able to maintain this um, will come, comes to how we legitimize it. Um, and so Kenya has an auction system that legitimizes um, that kind of system. So it says that, okay, so you we have an auction, which means this is fair, uh, but it's really not fair. When you go into the kind of the process of how the auction works, you realize that the auction makes that, that process of oppression legitimized. Right. And it goes back to the ideas that you were talking about institutionalized racism and racism essentially being written into the laws and the way that coffee farmers can even interact with the things that they produce. Yes. So they're forced to do things a certain way that don't serve them necessarily, but they serve um, the needs of big coffee. So when you think of, think about it, right. So, um, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more, which comes to really there's a crux of the crisis, right? So essentially when we, when we think about the current coffee prices, the only two countries that, can really survive at the current price point are Brazil and Vietnam. Those are the only two countries that can produce coffee. 
Um, so can you imagine what would happen to the specialty coffee industry, which is really the the higher value part of the industry? If if all the other countries sort of suddenly stopped producing coffee, what would happen to the specialty coffee industry and what would happen to the value of coffee? So I think that's one of the questions that I go through in my mind is how do we think about sort of pricing the coffee um, in Brazil and Kenya in the same way when they're really two very different products that produce, like imagine a blue bottle or a Stumptown just with Brazil and Vietnam coffee. Like, how does that look? Right. It seems like something that I think that you do really well is that you're able to break down these problems in a very succinct and understandable manner. So I wonder with the limitations in the Kenyan coffee market that you outlined, how does yeah. someone like you as an entrepreneur start to think, oh, these are ways we can start to solve these problems? Yeah. So I think that, um, so in the Kenya case, um, and in the discussion that you had with Baba, she did explain how, um, because of the way the system is set up, it's really institutionalized um, in a way that, you know, only European companies can, can, um, can, export that coffee and even to go an extra mile in in the law for a long time you are not allowed to roast coffee in Kenya and that's why Kenyans don't drink coffee up until recently um so that was one way to make sure that you could only Kenya was only for extracting green coffee you could not roast it and right now in Europe they have prohibitive um import taxes which means that even if um, Kenyan farmers, which is really what they need. They need to be like Hawaii, where they have their own brands. And that's what we're trying to do with Kahawa, being able to roast their own brands. That way they can capture the end value, where which is where most of the value right now sits. That to me is how I see uh, farmers, uh, you know, like farmers in Kenya who have really great coffee, delicious coffee that should still exist in the market. Uh, but the current pricing dynamics make it kind of almost impossible for anyone to make a living out of coffee. But if there was a way for them to do direct to consumer, to, you know, to go directly to the, to to the consumers uh, and be able to capture that last mile, which is where most of the profits are, then we can actually start to think of uh, a business model that fits. Um, And so for us, my first, my sort of, uh, my, my goal when I started Kahawa was, um, Trying, how do we get money in the hands of, um, you know, how do we get money? We can change the system on day one, as you know. <laughs> it's, it's institutionalized right. for, for a reason. So you can't change it on day one. So what can you do, right? Um, and so for me was, oh, what if we can, as being in America, I actually have access to that end market, right? What if I could capture that value of the end market and share it with the farmers? So that's what, what Kahawa was. And specifically for me in Kenya, um, there's this statistic that you really should know about is over 90% of the labor comes from women. So the labor on the farm, the labor on, um, you know, processing, all of that um, labor intensive work is done by women. And there, there's a reason for that, right? Because it's unpaid work. Um, so the, the, the logic here is think of like a, a, male, a male person in Kenya, they're too proud to do work for free. Men are too, men of any color, are too proud to do to do work for free, and so they're like, okay, I can get a dollar at the market, uh, but um, my coffee is worth five dollars, but the market is willing to pay a dollar for it. I'm not willing to to work for a dollar, but you know what I can do? I can push my wife, who I control, and my my children, who I control. I can put them to work, and then get a dollar. So their work is worth five dollars. So I'm deploying five dollars worth of work to get a dollar back. And that's really what's happening, where we're seeing the interaction of um, interaction of race and gender, where we're kind of seeing sort of marginalized groups along the racial lines and, mar- and then marginalized um, gender is kind of being put on the line to being pushed really by society to provide free labor. Um, so the, in, in the U.S., we think of free labor as sort of the work that we women are doing for free at home, right? The cooking, the childcare that we're doing for free and not rewarded. But in, in coffee, um, the system has figured out how to actually mobilize that free labor um, at the farm level. And also in That's a- in Bangladesh, they also have done that, you know, for in the sweat, you know, sweatshops. So it's a similar, if you're familiar with that, it's a similar dynamic. 
but now at the farm level. So you're able to, without saying it, you're pushing men to put up their women to work for free for a pittance, for like a discount, obviously, a 20% discount. Or a that's a yeah. <laughs> no, that's such a powerful um, like metaphor to use, especially when you equate it to the ways that we sort of understand unpaid labor in the United States. Um, we understand it as the cooking and the cleaning, but then you just spread it outward, and that's exactly what's happening in a lot of coffee producing countries in a, in Kenya. And actually, uh, so I wonder, like, quick, quick, so yeah, go ahead. Sorry, quick, go ahead. Quick, quick, quick ad and. So you you hear the question a lot of like, okay, the market will correct, the market will correct because um because if, if you know if farmers can't sustain um can't sustain these prices, why do they keep producing, right? That's the question you hear, right? The the main defense from Big Coffee has been we're trying to correct the market because if these prices are unsustainable, then why are people producing? But what they're not understanding is they more and more marginalized people are being pushed to pro- to, pro- to provide free labor. So the children, the women are being pushed to provide uh, free labor. That's a, such a powerful point. And I wonder as an economist, yeah. how do you take that perspective of using the market to both solve this problem, but also to really explain like how the market is failing? Cause I think that's, like what you just said about how marginalized people will often have to take up the brunt of the work that others don't or are willing to do is super powerful. Cause again, I've heard that before too, uh, that the market will correct and why would this happen if the market wasn't going to correct for it? So how do you, how do you, yeah. How do you, how do you kind of rectify that? Yeah. That's the moral, that's the moral. Like if you push um, a big coffee person to the wall, that's kind of their moral standing of I'm paying market prices because that's what that's what's good for us because um, that's how the market will correct. But they know that the market will not correct. It's going to be an oversupply for a long time, and so that's a really good question. So I back it when I think about the current coffee crisis, which I think about all the time. And going back to as a black woman in coffee, again as someone who embodies the two things that the industry uses exploits really for profitability. So racial inequality and gender inequality. Those are the two kind of elements that are holding profitability um, intact. If we were suddenly, think of this, Ashley, if we were suddenly to attain racial equality and gender equality, and we actually have to pay what it costs to produce coffee, do you think we would need a new business model for coffee or not? Absolutely, we would. So that's really that that's something that for a lot of people to think about, like as much as we're pushing equality, racial and gender equality, if we were to pay sort of minimum wage for people to actually produce coffee, coffee would not be served the way that it's served today. So that's something for people to really think about. But back to your question of what are the what are the issues that are really affecting uh, price when I think of them? Um, So there's three, three things and I'm going to bucket them into three area. So the first one is we hear a lot that there's an oversupply. So there's too much coffee being produced relative to demand. So you've had that one, right? Mm -hmm. And then the second one is there's too much speculation on Wall Street. So Wall Street, um, which is where the coffee prices are determined, there's traders that are speculating on what the future prices are going to be. And that's getting out of hand. It's becoming disconnected from sort of the realities of, 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 of cost of production. And to pause there a little bit, it makes sense because remember, when the coffee business model was designed, labor was a non-issue because labor was considered to be free. So labor was either something that you you know was gonna be free from slaves. I'd already been when you paid for your slaves at the um, slave market, you had already paid for your labor going forward, right? It's like buying a house. Um, or in Africa, the labor was gonna be free because you just forced the natives to work for free. So the only two things that you were thinking about were diseases and uh, and climate change. Those are the only things. And our market still behaves that way because that's a business model. Labor is still assumed to be free. Really. Um, so unless we change that idea that we need to specifically start paying for labor and change the business model, that's something that, um, you know, speculation will always be trading like we're trading in, 18, in the 1800s. And the third point is, <clears throat> you know, the, it's a fact that big coffee is unwilling to pay for black and brown brown labor. 
So those are the three elements. Do you agree with them? Are those three points you've had people talk about? I don't think anyone has ever used the term big coffee before, which I find really fascinating because you use it a lot. And I think it is really helpful to think about how powerful actors, like the ones that you mentioned earlier, can influence the politics of an entire country. Yeah. Yeah. I call them big coffee because that's like, we, we, and I'll later on, I'll, I'll kind of tell you how big coffee is really behaves a lot like big tobacco behaves a lot like big pharma. And we have to start thinking about them that way. But anyway, so three things, one is there's an oversupply. And then the second one is um, speculation is messing up the prices. And the third is big coffee is basically just unwilling to pay for black and brown labor under any circumstances. Um, you know, regardless of what else is going on. And so for me, when I think about those three things, they're all true. Um, those three, three things are all actually interacting um, because what we have is, again, big coffee being unwilling to pay for um, for black and brown labor is essentially uh, using um, the market, the Wall Street market to legitimize, similar to how we use the auction in Kenya to legitimize that market. You can think of Wall Street as a place where you legitimize. You don't want to pay for labor. So think of it. If there was no Wall Street and Nestle had to pay for coffee and they decided to pay a dollar now, people would complain. would be like, Nestle, you cannot pay that. You need to pay the market price. But now Nestle can pay a dollar and say the market has approved that I should pay that price. And so I think the best way to think about it is Big Coffee is now using the market to hide behind not wanting to pay for black labor. And then the third aspect, which is essentially what we're witnessing, we're witnessing an oversupply. And that oversupply is because we have false signals. So we have people acting differently. So the average person or the average farmer is looking at the market and trying to study it and saying, okay, this is how the market is and I'm going to behave a certain way. But the reality is, however the market moves, the, the the biggest sort of thing that we, we need to change or we can change is the willingness to pay. Um, and so for me, I get back to what, what, what we're seeing in the market is a, is a consequence of sort of three things interacting together. And we're, we're going to be in oversupply for a long time because, as you know, in Brazil, because of the technology that they have, they can produce all the coffee that we need. Um, so all other countries can actually... And, Jeffrey Sachs just re- uh, released a report actually this month, and he said the same thing. Brazil and Vietnam can produce this, all the coffee that we need. All the other countries can start producing, and those two, those two countries can produce all the coffee that we need. Um, so Brazil can respond to coffee shortages overnight. Um, so we're never going to be in a shortage. So this is where permanently in oversupply. Um, so does that mean that we're going to constantly be at this $1 price point, like this is the new $1 price point. So how do we think about that going forward? Oh, I don't know. Um, but but it is, <laughs> yeah. it is absolutely illuminating hearing you talk about the coffee supply crisis because it seems like if you go into... It's not a crisis. It's been a crisis. Right, it's not new. Years, so it's not a crisis. This is like, it's a new normal that we need to face that this is the price that a Brazilian farmer can mechanized farmer can, you know, can survive at. So what should we do? <laughs> you know, right? Exactly. So I wonder how you see yourself in that system. So one of the things that you mentioned is that you cut out the middleman and yeah. you go directly from producer to consumer. Um, and so, like, how? How can that, is that scalable at all? Like, I wonder, like, is that a solution on a small scale, a large scale? Like, do you look at large scale problems? How do you think about that? I mean, I think, so one is an industry. So we need an industry, we need an industry reaction, obviously, right? So ideally we need um, something that's scalable. And I think what Jeffrey Sachs proposed was like a 10 billion fund um, to support farmers uh, over the next 10 years. Um, because he, he said that this is the new price. This is what, this, going forward, we're not going to move away from a dollar, right? And when I think about that, and I know that a dollar, so if it's a dollar, my farmers are getting, what, 10 cents or less? <laughs> um, so it's really not, like 10 cents, you can't even buy fertilizer with that, right? Um, so it's essentially, 
you know, how do we think about alternative markets, right? So for us, it's like, okay, how can we kind of participate in the specialty market where we can pay our farmers a better price, but even more so where we invite um, consumers to basically send their tips directly. And we're thinking of this really as a, the way we think about waitresses. We know their their wages are below minimum wage. So when we pay for our, our bills, we add like a 20% tip to make sure that they're getting the minimum wage. So we understand the dynamics of the restaurant industry. And so as a consumer, we, you know, we, we've chosen to support that, right? Um, and so for us, well, for Kahawa, as you know, we introduced a tipping mechanism where we have a code, um, the, the back of the bag, you can scan it and you can send a tip directly to the farmer. And we think that that's, an, that's a, almost um, a 21st century fair trade system. So with fair trade, the idea was you paid an extra dollar or more, and then some of that made it to the farmer. It, it's unclear how much of it. Uh, made it to the farmer using a dollar. I think once everyone took out their their share along the value chain, I think they said for each dollar, five cents is getting to the farmer. So we're saying, what if instead of paying a dollar extra for your coffee, which which you should be, I mean, coffee is really, you know, obviously um, still, people think it's expensive, but it's still not, like the prices are still on the lower side. You can send um, a tip directly to the farmer. So we, we see that as like one way where consumers can be actively engaged with where the coffee is coming from and choosing to um, to support them directly. So that's one approach. Um, and the other approach is an industry-wide approach where as an industry, we actually start to think about where, what, what moves the needle, right? Um, and so far, the discussions that I've seen around how to solve them, I've just been really nibbing at the edges and they've really been about supporting this, this oppressive system? How do we hold this oppressive system in, in place so that we can also benefit? Um, and I, I can go a little bit into detail, but I don't know if you have any other questions around that. Um, I mean, you, I have so many questions, <laughs> but, um, but something that, just touching back a little bit on um, the idea of value and who creates value before we got on this call, we were talking a little bit about some of the things that you wanted to talk about. And I think relating back to that idea of a dollar being the new normal, and then also thinking politically about the moment that we're in and how both responsive coffee prices seem to be to the political climate, but also at the same time, when you say that a dollar is like the new normal, that also feels like incredibly unresponsive. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that dichotomy about what is actually influencing coffee prices and where can we expect to see prices fluctuate or where do we actually expect to see change happen as the politics around us kind of change and interact with us? Yeah, um, and that's actually a really good question. Um, So as you know, coffee is a political crop. Um, And I mentioned earlier that we used to have a cartel, which was an international coffee system that used to control the coffee prices, it acts a lot like you know, our oil. Oil has a cartel. That's how they keep the prices um, sort of stabilized a little bit. So coffee used to have something similar. And the way that that was kept in place was an agreement between the producing countries and the consuming countries. Um, so, the, for example, U.S. and Brazil. And so the reason the, the U.S. is the major um, consuming country. So the U.S. really is the biggest driver of what happens in the world around coffee. So the U.S. liked that system, liked to stabilize coffee prices because when coffee prices um, destabilize, they cause a lot of harm in, in, in the world. So right now, a lot of the immigration we're seeing on the border, that's coffee. Uh, a lot of that of people coming from Guatemala, Honduras that have been displaced. When we had the last coffee crisis is what produced the Rwanda genocide. That was the coffee crisis. So a lot of really... Uh, bad things happen when coffee prices crash. In in um, Ethiopia, Ethiopia had a green famine, and that was because of, of coffee. So you have this really, um, you know, political things that can be put in place by kind of looking at how to stabilize coffee. So anyway, back during the Cold War, the U.S. was incentivized to stabilize economies so that they don't, you know, turn to communism. So the U.S. was kind of led the movement of making sure that 
coffee uh, coffee producing countries had stable pricing and stable economies so that they didn't uh, you know turn red. But after we saw the crash after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, since then the U.S. has never been incentivized to um, to kind of stabilize those those countries because there's no Cold War going on yet, um, and so so that's one area where um, it kind of coming down to how does that affect us. So currently, uh, Trump just um, you know, essentially upheld that the U.S. doesn't want to stabilize the coffee prices. So that just happened recently. And so depending on the administration, so if we have, let's say, a, um, Democrats in power, um, they, depending on their politics, they might be incentivized to look towards stabilizing um, the, the, coffee, the stabilizing coffee economy. So maybe they want to stem the immigration that's coming to the border. So they might be incentivized to actually uh, force big coffee to negotiate better prices. So that's how politics com- comes in. For me personally, um, I've been actually following this current political climate very closely. Um, and the, one of the most interesting solutions that I've seen put forward is, I think Andrew Young, one of the candidates, has something called UBI, which is a universal basic income. And what I really like about that is he's acknowledging that technology is essentially making it harder for labor to catch up or labor to be compensated accordingly. And so because a lot of the benefits of technology go to very few people, very few winners take all the benefits. So he's saying, how can we distribute those benefits to everyone? And we're seeing that with Big Coffee, where we're seeing they are taking all of the benefits of technology. So as Brazil gets better and more and more productive, Big Coffee is able to take all those all those. Um, all those benefits, but it means a, a lot of the labor gets marginalized even more. So I, I think for me, I was like, the reason I was thinking we need to figure out a way to get money directly in the hands of farmers is because that's what they need the most. They need money in their hands directly. And if there was a way for me, a dream solution would be uh, a place where as an industry, we agree that we need a stable market. We need diversity of, re- of, uh, of, of regions. Um, and the current speculative market is not a good vehicle for that. And so we agree that how can we provide a basic minimum wage for all the coffee producers in the countries because we can, and then and then have them keep producing the coffee. And that's how we can keep deforestation um, float. We can kind of reduce all of the problems that come with uh, sort of plantation coffee in, in Brazil. So we can have farmers in, in Ethiopia still grow their coffee in the original place, but actually get some money growing it and be encouraged. Because of climate change, we're going to lose a lot of varieties to climate change. If we only concentrate our risk into areas, it means that in like 10 years, if there's some kind of event, there won't be any coffee left. So as a, as a coffee, as a coffee sort of collective, we have to think of ourselves as a country and think of like our, our producers as citizens. And think about how can we give each one of them a basic income for them to keep participating in the diversity of coffee, which is kind of what adds value to the coffee when we think about coming back to value. When we think about how we market coffee, a lot of the marketing is attached to the production. It's attached to how carefully it was produced, the varieties, the farmer toil, all of that. And if we were suddenly to just have mechanized coffee, the narrative breaks down and suddenly no one's paying $10 for a mechanized coffee, right? Uh, and if in case of, a, uh, of an outbreak of disease or, or warming in Brazil, then we're just going to, coffee is going to be a luxury. Um, and so I'm thinking that the industry would come together and figure out how do we get a basic income for all coffee producers um, to keep them growing coffee um, for the future. It's really fascinating to think about the narrative that we we create in coffee where we talk about, you know, handpicked and this, this process that's almost romanticized. And yet as technology moves forward, you know, that's not going to be the narrative that we have. So we almost shoot ourselves in the foot a little bit, relying on this narrative for the addition of value, which is also misleading because as you mentioned earlier, value, although we almost co-opt the value that is created by producers, almost all the value monetarily speaking ends up in the hands of importers, roasters, the people who touch the end. 
um, which is a really interesting dichotomy. Um, it, it is. And I think, actually, this is going to be so important because, as you know, fake coffee is coming. Lab-grown coffee is coming. Like, we already have lab-grown meat. We already have lab-grown uh, diamonds. So as more and more people realize kind of the, the cost of growing, the cost of our environment of growing coffee, they're going to be convinced by coffee that's made in a lab. And so how are we going to convince people? And, and I guess comes back to, is it worth a lot of people being put through a lot of pain in these developing countries to produce coffee that we can't pay them to produce when we can produce it in a lab, right? Like, think about it. Like, 10 years from now, you have a choice of coffee that is slave-free, grown in a lab, versus coffee that you don't know where it came from. You don't know how many children died to bring it to you. Like, what will you choose? Think about it. Right. And even, like, I'm even thinking of the example of diamonds. Like, when you talk about, you know, getting an engagement ring, for example, you want a cruelty-free diamonds. Like, in 10 years, are we going to end up in that same situation with coffee where traceability is going to be so important that we want to know that it was grown in a lab or it did come from um, almost synthetic means because we can at least trace that really concretely. Yeah. Which is wild. I've never thought of that. <laughs> it's, it's a, and actually, now that I think about it, I think we're going to start to see more, um, and this is just the political side of me, which is, as you see, there's been a lot of backlash now um, towards sort of billionaires, towards the plutocracy. Um, and we've seen that backlash. Have you seen that? A lot of articles coming out. Sort of. Oh, yeah. Warrant. I mean, remember when Kylie Jenner was called the first self-made billionaire or first <laughs> self-made female billionaire or youngest, youngest it was. And people were like, um, that's not correct. <laughs> yeah, I know. So we're starting to see kind of a backlash on the billionaire class. And to me, in a way, it's almost like we cherry pick which industries to backlash at any one time. Like it's fashionable to backlash. So like, when I think about the damage that big coffee is doing um, in terms of, so I think of, and earlier I said, I, I kind of do the link between big coffee, big tobacco and big farmer. So when you think about big tobacco and big farmer, right? So these are, and, and if you had big coffee, these are three kinds of companies that produce addictive substances. Coffee is addictive, right? But they kill, right? Um, but the only difference is that coffee kills the producer, um, in the long run, because they can't feed themselves, they're you know they they drown in the ocean trying to immigrate. Um, so coffee and then you know tobacco and farmer, which is essentially the opioids, they kill the user. But coffee still is killing a lot of people, but it's killing producers. The reason we don't have the same outrage level is because it's killing people of color. And you know there's no just justice is not as swift when your victims are people of color. So I'm hoping that in the near future the same backlash that we're seeing going towards you know, big tobacco and big pharma, that people start to see that the, the you know, the, the victims of big coffee also need, uh, need justice. So I'm, that's my hope that in the next, when you ask about the future, in the future, I think we need to start talking about how much human damage big coffee's irresponsibility is causing in the world. So let's, let's talk just a little bit about big coffee, because I think you know, recently Starbucks announced this initiative where they were going to give back, I believe it was 20, 20 million or 20 billion, 20 million, $20 million to coffee yeah. producers. And to me, that sounds kind of like a bandaid to, or not even a bandaid, a bandaid's not even the right word. Cause that implies some sort of healing. Um, it sounds like a, oh, what's the word for like, it's like a red herring almost, or like a, or just like a distraction. So I wonder. They're covering their tracks. They're like, right. I mean, that's their brand. Their brand has been always about, we're, you know, we're doing good for farmers. Um, and so they wanted, there was, you know, so much outcry. I mean, I every day I was reading articles online from like the industry news about, like it's almost a one-sided conversation where the farmer, the people that are concerned with the farmer livelihood were having their own conversations. They're trying to tell Big Coffee to respond and Big Coffee was not responding. Um, and it, it just for Starbucks, this was like uh, something that they had to respond to, I think. Um, they, that, that was one of the responses. So then how do you see the role of Big Coffee answering responsibly? Because like, I mean, for better or for worse, big coffee is here. We have it. Like it's part of it's part of the market yeah. and it's influencing the market. So what to you would signal me- Yeah. What would you what would what would signal to you meaningful change? 
Um, so I think that, so first, I, I don't know if you read that article on Sprudge that about mm-hmm. them reaching out to Starbucks to ask for actual pricing. Did you see that article? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So that was one thing where I've, I've always essentially had an issue with Starbucks claiming to be 99% ethically sourced yet won't give us the figures. Um, so how are we supposed to know? How are we supposed to check? Right. Um, so, and then kind of knowing in the industry that they really were not, um, you know, lifting their weight based on their market. There was a disconnect between their marketing to produce to consumers and, it, and essentially what they were doing um, in, at the back. And I think for me, I read one article that I thought was super interesting. And it was talking about someone that traced back uh, a pack of, went actually to Colombia to meet uh, farmers that were part of the cafe, the Starbucks cafe practices. And then this farmer is actually saying they preferred selling their coffee to Nestle because Nestle paid more. I thought that was so funny. Um, But (laughs) back to uh, back to that. So I think that their article is really and I'm I'm glad that the industry is starting industry media in general, um, hopefully because they have other external sources of funding. As you know, the problem with we're not able to criticize big coffee because they fund everything. Right. They fund the research. They fund the media. So you can't really there's no place to criticize big coffee so i was kind of happy that spread is starting to go there um so they talked about how um 20 million essentially translated into less than three cents per pound for farmers right um but i think that for me when i first saw it when i saw this thing i think it was earlier in the year or last year my first thought was oh my god our problem right now in the world is that we have too much coffee and our solution is to give farmers more seedlings. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, we know we have an oversupply, but our, our contribution to you is going to be, we want to stick you with more coffee, right? Um, so to me, that was the reaction. And that kind of captures a lot of the sustainability programs because they're designed to make sure that we have an oversupply. All the programs are designed to increase the amount of production, which is not the right thing to do. That's why I'm very skeptical of sustainability programs because they're designed around how do we make, how do we kind of make sure oversupply is the new normal so that the power dynamics are always in big coffee's favor and farmers are always taking the big risk, especially now going into climate change where we're going to have, so like my, the farmers that I work with last year during the harvest season, our yield was down 40%, 40%. Can you imagine? Yield is down 40% when coffee prices are at their lowest. And this is because of climate change. The rains were, you know, late. And we're going to see more and more of this. And who's going who's, who's gonna to take the, the, uh, the plant of this climate change risk? It's farmers, right? Um, and so how do we make sure that we can have, I think for me, the, the, the thing that Big Coffee can do is work towards uh, stabilizing prices. And I know there's criticisms around, okay, if you put up a high price, we're going to have too much coffee coming out of Brazil. Because if you put a $3 price point, then everyone in Brazil is profitable and they're going to produce everything, right? But I think there's a way that the, the industry can design a market that's, that's, um, that's essentially fair to everyone. So they can design a market that you know, produces a minimum wage for Kenya, produces a minimum wage for Colombia, um, for Vietnam. That way you maintain the diversity, but at the same time, you also think about what's the environmental um, damage that's happening. How do we make sure we're taking not just price as the only input, but how are we thinking about the holistic humanity, thinking about humanity um, and the environment, not just the bottom line. Um, so I think for me, uh, when I think about Big Coffee's role, Big Coffee first has to figure out, has to decide they want to pay for black labor. Like that's one thing. Like I definitely want to wanna understand why Big Coffee is so unwilling to pay for, for black people's labor. Like we're tired of giving you free labor, okay? Like start to pay us, right? Um, so I, I really want to see... Uh, you know, like a big coffee person come out and, and, and say they want to make sure that they're paying for, for labor. Um, and then, and I think when I say black labor, people are confused because people don't realize Brazilian manual labor is mostly coming from 
black slaves in, in, in you know, black people that were slaves in Brazil, one district that's 80% black provides all of the labor that goes into coffee in Brazil. So when I say black labor, people are like, oh, but most coffee is coming from Latin America. But, but yeah, by, by slaves that were in Latin America. So yeah, so my, my back to your question about, uh, I think for me, I'd love to see big, uh, big coffee really figure out, you know, that they actually want to stop dehumanizing black people and start to pay for black labor. That's one thing I want. Um, and I think that we, we have to think about that our current coffee, big, big coffee leaders are profiting from the same, from the same way that their predecessors profited, which was how do you put free uh, black labor to use? Um, and I want to see them really come to terms with that and decide that they actually want to, you know, pay, pay labor as a priority. Um, so that's one. And then the second one is how do we stabilize prices? Um, and then we, we need to stop hiding behind the market because we know big coffee controls the market. So they, you can't hide behind Wall Street when you control Wall Street. Um, and then that brings me to my other point, which is, again, the composition of the market, uh, which is when the biggest coffee company is also a private equity company um, that also can trade in coffee on Wall Street, then you get a lot of conflict of interest going on. But I'll stop there. <laughs> I know that's a I've, lot. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a lot, but I feel like you need to write a book or something. I need, I need, I need all of these ideas. Like, I know I've been meaning to write a blog post, but maybe after this discussion, I have my 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 ideas a little bit more fleshed out. I might do, like you're saying, make it more accessible. Um, so I might do like an article to 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 just kind of capture a lot of what we've spoken about, so that more people can. But it's a, it's a lot, though. You're right; it's a book worth. Um, it's, the, it's, it's such a complex problem, but the way that you describe this problem feels yeah. so accessible. So I feel like you've really found a way to communicate the issues that you're seeing on the market in a very tangible manner, but yeah. still, but still very much accepting that this is a complex issue with a lot of contextualization needed. Um, yep. so just to wrap up, um, I was wondering with all this information, like what, what can like a barista take from this? What can somebody at the very other end of the spectrum leave, leave from this conversation and be like, this is what I can do tomorrow, or this is what I should be paying attention to today. Yeah. And and I think that baristas are really like have are kind of at the point where the consumer like interacts with the, with the beverage, right. They're like at the forefront of, this war almost, right? Sometimes we put them there and we don't give them more, all the information that they need. Sometimes when I go to a cafe and I feel bad, like asking all the questions of like, oh, where's this coffee from? Like, do you know if it's, you know, like if it's direct trade or something? So baristas do a wonderful job uh, of sort of articulating that information to consumers who sometimes don't even care as well. So making them like, making it interesting enough um, to care. And I really liked the... Uh, the series, I don't know who, who led it, but I think you were involved. They want to ask me about cost of production series. I, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not part of it. I did record an episode for the show. Um, but Karen and Mike Nelson, who own juniors roasted coffee in Portland, Oregon, um, organized that. So I really liked that. Um, I thought it was like a, like seeing that, at, like at the coffee shop and having like a consumer that's interested, pick that up and ask questions. Um, so that's really like one way that, um, you know, just having that information where you're not overbearing, because I know some consumers really just want to get their coffee. They don't want to talk. <laughs> so where you have that information maybe placed around the coffee shop so people can read and understand. Um, and I think that for for baristas, I think that they, because they're the, the first line of defense for their brand, um, they need to... I think figure out, learn more about actually what matters. Um, and I know in your you know previous podcast you've talked about some of the shortcomings of specialty coffee, which is a lot of the a lot of the things that we care about at the sort of at the cafe level may not be you know good enough for farmers, right? Like the micro lots, right? They may not translate right. really, right? So just making sure that um, some of you know, that they are aware of what's going on. They're aware of like how farmers can be helped. Um, and they, when they're having conversations with consumers, they can be able to 
talk about, okay, this coffee may not be, I like this example, but I like the example that you, you use, which is, this is an 84 point coffee, which is delicious, but we know where it came from. We know it's helping farmers versus we're pushing uh, 91 in your face because it's the best coffee we've ever had, but we know like that the farmer didn't get paid. Does that make sense? So it's no, totally. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I think, I think baristas being informed that it's ex, like, we can be nerdy about extraction. We can be nerdy about latte art, but also being able to tell consumers that you should care about that quality is not just about, um, okay, this is the best coffee that's ever been on the planet, but also that we need to support brands that are doing the work that's needed on the ground, not just, you know, not just like, you know, talking, but they're walking the talk. And as you know, I have sold green coffee to to companies, so I actually know what companies are saying versus what they're willing to do. Uh, so, so I think that baristas are the ones that can actually push their employers to to either walk the talk or educate consumers about what brands they should care about. So, because consumers don't always know what to look for in a brand, um, but they can tell them like this shop like pays this, this amount, or this shop does something that's beneficial to the farmer. Uh, but in a way that's genuine and authentic. So not using like things that don't, the things that sound good, but are not really, don't make a difference to the farmer, but making consumers care that the, these things that we may not be putting in your face, but these are the things that you should be, like this cafe could be beautiful and you know look the best, but you need to also look at like, what does this brand mean for, for farmers? And one, just to, to loop in this, uh, we have to think about specialty coffee as, again, as you know, we have big specialty. So the three or four major specialty coffee companies are owned by big coffee, right? So when you go to like a Blue Bottle or a Stamptown Intelligentsia, you're really patronizing Nestle or JAB, right? Um, and so for me, I've actually struggled with if our problem is we're trying to change the minds of JAB or Nestle, and, and as you know, Starbucks is also kind of owned by Nestle. As much as specialty coffee wants to have their own discussions, I want to see big specialty challenge their owners to change. Um, because one big decision, as you saw, JAB, one big decision on extending payment periods to 360 days wrecked havoc on farmers. So one coffee company can change the whole industry. In this case, they changed it for the worse. But that's the kind of decision where a big specialty that's talking a lot can can talk to their parent company about doing better things for farmers. And that can be have a major impact than some other programs that may not. So that's my radical thing for today, <laughs> which, <laughs> which uh, is controversial, mm-hmm. but I think that no. it's controversial. I, I don't want to hear big specialty brands lecture about all the good that they're doing when your parent company where which where where, is, where all your money is going is racking is wrecking havoc <laughs> so i just want i right. want baristas to be brave and i think you know actually you've done such a wonderful job by the way when i found your podcast i cried because as you know there aren't many people of color or women of color in the industry and i was essentially again as you know, as a black woman and knowing that racial and, and gender inequality are really what the industry exploits for profit. So knowing that my two identities were being exploited for profit and not being not having someone to talk to or to even acknowledge that. I think finding your podcast, you know, that was smashing the patriarchy, I was just like I I like cried. I was like, Oh my God, I found my people. Uh, so yeah, I've been a big fan oh um, from the beginning, and so this is such a an honor to chat with you because you're doing wonderful work. So if anyone hasn't told you, you you made a difference in my life, and I think you're making a difference in the lives of so many people by empowering baristas who are the first line of defense, oh who can can influence culture, who can make brands cool or not cool, and we need to start talking about pretend pretend specialty and real specialty. And pretend specialty is specialty that is going to talk big games about helping farmers when your parent company is oppressing farmers. So that's my controversial point today. Uh, but I think I want to see more of, uh, I want to see more big specialty brands that are, the parent companies are oppressing us to start to confront those instead of lecturing us about what they're paying for. 
Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. my controversial. <laughs> you can cut. You can cut if it's so no, I'm going to keep all that. If you want to give a controversial <laughs> take every day, and just I can tack them on to the end of all of my podcast. I'm that would be that would be a delight. Um, so that's the thing is like when you asked me of like what's in like this is one of your questions of like what is happening in the industry that I think so I see people talking a lot. People are talking a lot about prices about helping farmers, but I'm saying. If you can just go to your parent company and tell them to even increase the price, which they can influence by 20 cents, you can change the industry, right? You can change right. the industry. So that to me is, I want to see more baristas start to, to, to talk about their employers. You know, obviously the way uh, transparency has been such a, an amazing way to see the hypocrisy behind the scenes. Um, so I want to see more baristas really tell us the truth of like, are the brands saying doing what they're saying and right. really trust so i'd love right. to see that next because i don't want to pe- people use kind of like their one percent uh purchases for marketing when 90 percent of their of their purchases are ex- exploitation so i want to talk about the 99 percent exploitation i don't want to hear about the one percent that's really kind of what i'm tired of i'm tired of the one percent marketing i want the 99 percent exploitation and how can we move the needle on that I don't think I've ever had a conversation that has challenged my thinking and really opened up the way that I understand the coffee world as much as this conversation with you. So thank you so much for lending your insights. I feel like I'm already thinking about what a part two conversation between the two of us would look like. Um, you're, you're just, you're amazing. Like you're, you're just fucking incredible and you need to write like 800 books or something i'm keeping keeping real i hope i don't get into trouble um because of because but you know what i mean i I don't have anything to right and that's a good point too Um, i think to think about this conversation between me and you is that like you own a business i'm pretty much unemployable like we but this is but this is like a low risk conversation in a certain way i mean it is high risk because you do own a business and you're still a figurehead but there is like a lot, yeah. there's a lot of freedom that you and I can have in this conversation um, to say. That other people can't. Yeah, to, you're right. Yeah. No, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I think if I don't, who will? Because a lot of people really cannot, this is what they're thinking, but they can't really say right. it. Right. Um, but there's a power to putting that into words and giving people at least a, like an ear to be like, oh, someone else is thinking this as well. Maybe I can talk yeah. to my boss about this. Um, and it's not so much about yeah. baristas maybe, you know, not wanting to have these conversations, but giving them the tools to have them. Um, like the barista wage spreadsheet, you know, that was just like an idea someone had and then they went with it. Um, it's it, There's yeah. just a lot of power to like hearing ideas, seeing examples. Um, and I hope that people listen to this and think, I'm going to talk to my boss about this or I want more focus on this other thing. Um, and I just hope that they leave with a better I understanding. I hope so. I, yeah. I hope so. I know it was a lot. It was like me. This is like my therapy almost where I'm like downloading all this info on someone that I know understands. So this is like not, you're not being like, oh my God, I've never had that before. But you are being like, oh, like I've had that before, but this is like a new perspective on it. So this this was such a, you know, great discussion to have with someone that's knowledgeable and empathetic. Uh, about the situation. If this is uh, your therapy, then you can come do therapy here at any time you want. So I know this is like my free therapy. I mean, I get frustrated again as a black woman from a producing country. As you know, it's a shit show. So it's just really, <laughs> I sometimes get frustrated. So to be able to have, I mean, and 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 just to be a little bit candid is. I, I didn't always speak like this. I've been a bit more reserved, obviously fearful of like, what are people going to think of me? Like, I got to be PC, politically correct. Uh, but, you know, like, I don't know. Like, I, I, when I look at it, it's like, if I don't say it, who's going to say it? Like, we have to fight. Like, we have to fight for freedom. Freedom does not, does not just come on a plate. Um, and so this is where I'm thinking. I actually coffee radicalized me. I just I did not really care too much about politics or any of the social issues that, that much before I came into coffee because I was like in a little bubble. But coffee has radicalized me, and I feel like um, one of your questions was around social justice. Um, coffee, like seeing the levels of inequality, like radicalized me. Where I felt like when you're a black woman in coffee, you're an accidental activist because you cannot be an activist (laughs) 
because uh, of everything that's coming at you. But uh, thank you so much, Ashley. I really appreciate you making time for this chat and inviting me. No, anytime that you want to be on the show, you can be on the show. <laughs> um, thank you again for talking to us. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash boss barista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode and tag us, that would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at BossBaristaPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.